this world was being watched closely by intelligences greater than man's. Unsympathetic intellects slowly and surely drew their plans against us. It is Foreign Invader with Conrado Falco III. Hello and welcome to Foreign Invader. My name is Conrado Falco the third and this is the podcast about the pop culture that is corrupting american life every episode we take a piece of culture that originated in not the united states of america and talk about its impact on our country and our lives i want to start out by once again thanking luis gaudio for coming on to talk about super mario last episode we had a very silly very fun conversation so check that out if you haven't already today however Australian pop diva Kylie Minogue is synonymous with joyous dance pop brilliance. In a career spanning more than 30 years, she sold more than 70 million records worldwide. The European press has named her the Princess of Pop. She's also a fashion icon. In 2009, the Victoria and Albert Museum honored her with an exhibition called Kylie Minogue, Image of a Pop Star. She has influenced a whole generation of pop stars, including Kim Petras and Dua Lipa. She is huge in the UK, in Australia, all across the world, except in America. So what gives? In order to solve this mystery, I have with me a very special guest. You might recognize him as a film and theater critic whose work has appeared in the New York Times and in American Theater Magazine. You might recognize him as the host of the wonderful podcast Token Theater Friends. To me, he is a dear friend and the biggest Kylie fan in the world. It's Jose Solis. Thank you so much for being here, Jose. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited. Like I had to bite my tongue not to sing some Kylie for you. Oh, no, please do. Okay, we'll get into the karaoke section later on, I'm sure. Um, before we get into Kylie, though, I'd like to start by asking the guests where they're from and where they grew up. I was born in Tegucigalpa, uh, Honduras, in 1986, which means I'm about to be 35. And yeah, that's I, I was there for 18 years. That's my childhood and like most of my teenage years before I left for Costa Rica and then came to New York. And it was definitely in Honduras where I first uh, fell in love with Kylie, for sure. Wow. How long were you in Costa Rica? About seven years. Oh, okay. And then yeah. New York City. Yeah, for eight and a half years, which is very Fellini and like, kind of perfect in a way. Fantastic. So something that I love to do on this show is talk and debunk and analyze stereotypes about different countries and places and cities. So what are some stereotypes about... Honduras and, and about Costa Rica that you'd like to either confirm or deny or, you know? Um, yeah, I mean, as you know, unfortunately, most of like the stereotypes around Latin American people are not necessarily the best, especially in America. I mean, like the first thing that I thought about when you asked that was like, my people were the people who were coming in that scary, terrifying migrant caravan right. that Republicans were terrified of, right? Um, so to the world, I mean, it's definitely one of the poorest countries in Latin America. It's one of the most violent countries in the world. It's, you know, years um, back, you know, years in the past when it comes to like human rights and all of that. 
but I guess there's like this myth that people down there are very uh, corrupt. And I don't know if this is like, if this makes me happy or sad to realize, but they're not any more corrupt than people in the American government. Uh, <laughs> oh, boy, tell me about it. Yeah, I'm like, I'm like, oh, okay. It's not, it's not that bad. Maybe like, you know, it, they're the same. So that's one of the bad stereotypes that, you know, maybe I shouldn't talk about mm. that much because it, it's sad. Um, I recognize but, uh, that very much. I like, I mean, I don't know if this is the case in Honduras, but in Peru, the people in Peru have this idea. I mean, there's a lot of corruption problems there. And there's this idea of like, oh my God, our country is so fucked, basically, because there's so much corruption. There's nothing we can do. And then you look at America or like other places and you're like, well, they have their shit together. You know what I mean? But then you come here and you realize that everything is just as corrupt. And the thing is that it's the same. It's just America has a much better publicist. Yeah, I mean, totally. Yeah, I mean, like, I know for sure that no one in Honduras or Peru would ever, like, go and, like, storm the capital in our countries, right? I mean, yeah, it would be different from this version, for sure. (laughs) (laughs) What do people in Honduras think about themselves? Do they have, like, is there a stereotype within the country about how Honduran people are? That is so interesting because I've never thought about this, but because uh, usually most stereotypes are about how other people are, right? So mm-hmm. I cannot think of anything that like really unifies the entire country, maybe other than football and drinking. Uh, but other than that, when I've met people from outside, you know, when I've met foreigners, when I met people who have been to Honduras or who know other Honduran people, they'll usually be like, oh, like people from Honduras are always so nice. And I'm like, well, they weren't that nice to me. Um, but uh, maybe, I don't know, maybe I'm just like a jerk. Um, but it's kind of like the opposite of like, so you asked me about Costa Rica also. Like Costa Rica has this reputation for, they call themselves the Switzerland of the Americas. Right. I've uh, heard this because, before. Yeah, because it's a super n- neutral allegedly country because they have no army and they pride themselves in like having superior education and culture and all that. But as most countries that are, uh, you know, kind of mirroring the first world countries, so to speak, there is so much racism there. Oh, wow. And like blatantly. So yeah, where it's, uh, it's the only country in Latin America that I've seen where like most of the people call themselves white. Mm. And I'm like, "Mm, you should look at yourself in the mirror again. Um, But it's kind of that mentality, but it's like, you know, I guess the, the, the perfect way to put it, and you're going to get this right away is that Costa Rica is the Argentina of Central America (laughs) where no one can really stand Costa Ricans because they're so arrogant. Right. Yeah. That's so funny. We had Francisco Mendoza, who is from Argentina, came on this podcast before, and we talked exactly about that perception of Argentinians being so, you know, uh, unbearable by the rest of South America. I know, right? I mean, there's a point. Like, did you you tell him that? I mean, he probably knows it. Like, did you tell him that joke about, like, how to... uh, 
Argentinians and like thunder lightning storms? No. What... Why do Argentinians go outside when there's a lightning storm? Why? Because they think God is taking their picture. <laughs> <laughs> right. So the way that I put it to, to the audience that time was that Argentina is the France of South America. You know? <laughs> so, and that I guess Costa Rica is the Argentina then of Central America. That makes sense. Totally. We have to figure out what the Argentina of other continents is. Yeah. It's always good to know. <laughs> what would you say was the most American thing about your childhood? Everything, basically. Like, I grew up... You know, I went to an American school uh, when I was, I started going when I was six. But even before then, like I, I've spoken to you in the past about how growing up uh, at home, you know, obviously like we love telenovelas and everything, but like on top of my VCR player at home, there were like, it was like, there were three movies. It was basically Citizen Kane, Casablanca and Gone with the Wind. And, you know, my, I have, I have uh, family members who have worked in the um, U.S., like the Peace Corps and stuff like that, or like people who taught in the U.S. So they were always bringing books and movies and music and stuff from the U.S. So at some point, my grandmother was the, uh, had a diplomatic job in Los Angeles as well. So everything about my childhood was like super American to the point where my grandma used to call me a gringo. Wow. And I'm like, yeah, and I'm like, I'm definitely not a gringo. <laughs> Uh, but it was like, you know, I was watching, uh, I don't know if it's the same in Peru, but in Honduras, like, uh, the American networks, like ABC, CBS, NBC are, uh, we have them on cable. Did you also have them in Peru? We had them for a while when I was little, but, but not anymore. And, you know. Right. So I grew up watching like all the sitcoms and I was watching, you know, obviously Power Rangers on mm -hmm. Fox on Saturdays, uh, in the mornings and. But yeah, like I, I, there was a point, I don't even remember when this happened, when I literally like stopped, I was like obsessed with telenovelas and I stopped watching telenovelas. And then I just started this like really long, like sitcom phase where I would watch like every sitcom out there and like every show out there. And then, uh, yeah, I, I somehow ended up like watching much more American made uh, TV, for instance, than from anywhere else in the world. And obviously mm -hmm. like it's impossible in that America to be there and not be, you know, absorbed by some, all the Hollywood movies that we get. That's basically all we get. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, I also had a huge sitcom phase when I was growing up. I That's basically how I, I mean, I was taught English in school, but really I like learned and to actually understand English by watching those shows. And there were subtitles, but at some point I was understanding what they were saying and I wasn't reading anymore, you know. Um, and you learned all your idioms watching sitcoms, Yeah, exactly. Right? You you learn because you, they don't teach you that, you know? They don't teach you, like, slang and idioms and how to make jokes and, you know, things like that. Um, I have one last question for you, which is, I recently wrote on my blog because I, was, I went into this sitcom thing of, like, looking back at all the sitcoms that I used to watch, very nostalgic, and I landed on, at the end... Of course, because I'm from South America, El Chavo del Ocho. And I wanted to know if it was big in Honduras because it was enormous in Peru. It was huge. But you want to know something very funny that's like kind of like embarrassing to admit to anyone out loud. So when I was very little, I was terrified of all the characters in El Chavo. Because 
you know, to me, I was a little kid, and to me, these are fucking old people, like playing kids, you know, very old people playing kids. And I found it so terrifying. Like I had this like recurring like nightmare where like El Chavo and like La Chimotrufia kidnapped me. So I was oh so terrified. Of them. <laughs> I was so terrified of them. So I kept thinking like, this is what an old person would try to do to like you know like steal a child to like harm you to like trick you yeah you know what i totally understand that i also was a little bit afraid of it especially when i was very young um and i think eventually that kind of fear turned into fascination you know how kids like sometimes are like afraid and then kind of i gravitate towards the thing that they're afraid so once i kind of started watching it but it always had this little bit of there's something awkward about it about the the yeah. adults playing kids no matter when you're watching it definitely it's like chabelo was chabelo like a thing in peru also no he wasn't but i know he's a mexican like kids entertainer i think right yeah who also did this like uh he had this like child voice like this when he was hosting it was so terrifying Conrado. and i was like <laughs> chabelo and like Trufia and a tower in cahoots like go kidnap children <laughs> they're coming to get me <laughs> you know i guess i remember like chabelo his uh his theme song and i found it so terrifying was like soy chabelo amigo de todos los niños like i'm chabelo a friend to all the children i'm like you're not my friend you're terrifying yeah is there anything similar in american i guess maybe peewee herman is the closest yeah that's what i was thinking although the teletubbies were kind of terrifying also if you, right. you, know, if you think about it but yeah, Pee Wee Herman definitely is the figure that yeah, I guess it's that whole thing about like behaving like a child, right? Like with like Mr. Yeah. Rogers doesn't have that. Barney's kinda creepy also. He never blinks. <laughs> Barney yeah, the dinosaur, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he is creepy. Um yeah. Right. So yeah, it is weird, huh? It is a little it's awkward. super weird, yeah. Yeah, but, but I, I did have I did have, because I don't know if your Chavo question was like, you know, if you wanted to go any further, but I did have a favorite character and I loved Doña Florinda so much. Oh, really? Yeah, because she always had her like rollers on and she was like so aggressive. And I love your mom, but Doña Florinda reminded me of my mom. Where like, if your mom comes to where you're playing, it's because you know you've done something. You're in trouble. You know? Yeah, she's probably yelling at you. And yeah. Mm-hmm. I think that's the thing that made it such a big hit is that the characters are so archetypal that like in every country in Latin America, you could, you know, you see your mom in Dona Florinda, you see your dad in Don Ramon. And, you know, there's always a kid who's annoying, like Kiko, who doesn't want to share his toys and things like that. Always. Yeah. But you know what's so funny about this? And I don't know if you know this. I don't know how big you were on telenovelas. Um. Not as much when I was a kid, because my mom and my grandma wouldn't let me watch them, even though they watched them all the time. <laughs> yeah, because you were going to be like obsessed with like the cleavages and stuff. Um, so I, I, I don't, you know, I was terrified of El Chavo, but um, what's, the, what's the guy's name? Roberto, Roberto Gomez? Bolaños? Yeah, Bolaños. Yeah. Chespirito. Right. But, you know, I was terrified of El Chavo, but I was a huge fan. And I don't know if you know this, that Roberto Gomez uh, Bolaños was also a telenovela maker. Oh. And yeah, he and his wife, Doña Florinda, Florinda Mesa, uh, did a couple telenovelas together and they were so incredible. They were like, um, you know, the best way, 
the only way that I can compare, you know, the only thing that I can compare it to this stage, and the best thing that I can think of is the telenovelas that we're making were kind of like HBO-y dramas that had like, you know, like more uh, nuance and more like mm. uh, sophistication than the other telenovelas that we're making, which were a little bit more crass and stuff. And I love them all, obviously. Uh, so like they would not do like the typical like Cinderella story, but they right. would do this like adult, you know, middle-aged people dramas. And they were so good. And I every time I saw, you know, like director Florinda Mesa, I was like, oh my God, this is a, this is Señor Florinda. <laughs> well, that's crazy. So what you're telling me right now is that uh, Chespirito and Florinda Mesa were doing their own like Mexican scenes of a marriage and I had no idea. And yeah. I have to go look this up right away. They're so good. So, so, so good. Obviously, they're like 3,000 episodes long, right? Because it's telenovelas. Let's talk about Kylie Minogue. Jose, you're a fan, so if someone came up to you and asked you, who is Kylie Minogue, what would you say? I would slap them. I'm like, how do you not know? <laughs> but I guess, you know, it's so funny because like, I'm, I'm very gay and Kylie is a gay icon in many, many ways. And one of the things that I'm, you know, when a straight person doesn't know who Kylie is, I'm like, okay, I forgive you. But when a gay man, especially, doesn't know who Kylie is, that's such a red flag for me. Mm, um, it's like a deal so, breaker. When, yeah. I, yeah. Or if they're like, oh my God, there's nothing worse than when I've heard so many gay guys, you know, I'm talking about Kylie or I'm wearing like a Kylie t-shirt or whatever. Not recently, obviously, but pre, you know, pre-COVID uh, days. And someone would be like, she has new music. And what they meant is she didn't retire after Can't Get You Out of My Head 20 nice. years ago. And I'm like, no, she did not retire. She's done like 10 albums since. So when people ask who Kylie is, I would say a couple things. First, I would say, you know, I would clutch my pearls and like his belief. Then I would say she's the Green Fairy from Moulin Rouge. And that for me in itself like encompasses so many things of what kylie does so well that i'm like if they say they don't know the green fairy from Moulin Rouge, then it's over <laughs> um, yeah i'm not engaging in conversation with these people anymore right so so that's interesting of the of that moment because i also think of her a little bit as the green fairy from Moulin Rouge, and that might be because i'm kind of like a movie guy but um but it's interesting that you think that that kind of embodies her because I think it's perfect casting and I'm not even I don't even know her that much as an artist you know I'm not as obsessed with her as you are so so do you want to say a little more about that do you have any more to say about how that represents her oh yeah absolutely you know like there's there's a couple things about why I think that is like the perfect embodiment of like everything Kylie does so well and 
one of the things that this is like more personal than anything else, but it's like she only has this like tiny, tiny appearance in the movie, right? Like when they're like tripping on absinthe and she's the green fairy from the absinthe bottle that comes to life. And she's like, I'm the green fairy. And then she sings a little bit of the sound of music and stuff. But it has this thing that Kylie has and she does so well. It's like when you least expect it, she kind of shows up. She's not like a leprechaun or something scary like that. Or someone from like a chavo. Um, <laughs> you know, she just, she shows up when you least expect it. And there's no way that you can watch anything she does. And like, there's no way that anyone sitting through that movie, although that movie can be very, you know, polarizing. But when the green fairy appears, there's no way that you're not going to be smiling. Hmm. It's so surprising and it's so joyful and it's so full of light and so happy. And then she, uh, Kylie as a performer and as an artist is extremely kitsch, right? She fucking like, she's like almost like a queen of camp. She, um, she, I don't know, she like bathes luxuriously in kitsch and like glitter and sparkles and disco. And when she's like dressed like a real life green Tinkerbell and she's like shaming around to the sound of music, then something happens in the in the movie that also helps me, you know, encompass, you know, why I love Kylie so much. And it's like, do you remember when she, you know, they're tripping real hard and they're about to like dive into the windmill and there's suddenly her voice and her eyes, like go, her eyes go red and her voice turns into a deep voice, like, you know, like scary, like almost like welcome to hell kind of voice. Do you remember that? Yeah. And do you know who voices her in that when she goes oh, into no. male? Oh, no, who does that? It's Ozzy Osbourne. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. So it's Kylie Minogue dancing and then turning into like a demon kind of thing and freaking Ozzy Osbourne, um, you know, dubbing her, right? And it reminds me a lot about something that Nick Cave says about Kylie. And he's like one of the... Uh, one of her most unexpected collaborators because he's like the, you know, Ozzy, I think, is the Prince of Darkness, but then, like, Nick Cave is probably, like, the Baron of, like, Sadness or something yeah. like that. <laughs> and Nick Cave, uh, when he worked with her, he said that, and again, this is, like, the king of Sadness, right? Like, oh, my God, that album that he wrote. Anyway, um, he said that the saddest song in the world to him was a Kylie Minogue song. And I'm like, if you are the, you know, Mr. Sad, Mr. You know, like rainy day, if you are saying that Kylie has the saddest lyrics in the world, wow, it's just like mind blowing. So hmm. for me, when Ozzy Osbourne like voices the Green Fairy, it's kind of adding that layer of like a lot of heartbreak and pain that's in Kylie's work that people don't really discuss very much because she hides it with glitter and disco balls. Right, right. You know, that's very interesting. And now that you mentioned Moulin Rouge, it reminds me of how, you know how in Moulin Rouge, there's that scene in which it's like a huge dance number towards the end and everyone's singing and dancing and then kind of you cut to Nicole Kidman and she's kind of dying of consumption. <laughs> so it, someone asked Baz Luhrmann, the director, why did you do that? That was so... 
such a weird shift and he was like well because when everything is happy and dancing and you cut to that it makes it you know it stands out even more which i think maybe goes a little bit with what nick cave is saying right like this thing of like so surprising to in this kind of pop dance package to find those lyrics and something so profound and emotional Absolutely. There's like, you know, the song that Nick Cave was referring to specifically, it's a Kylie song called Better the Devil You Know, which I'm going to recite the lyrics for you because I'm not going to sing. I don't want to like scare your your listeners. Um, but basically, like if you recite the lyrics, um, it's just like so incredible. It's basically say you won't leave me no more. I'll take you back again. And I'm like, no, Kylie, no. And then mm, no more excuses. No, no. Oh, hold on, I'm singing in my head. <laughs> but anyway, like when then, then she gets into the chorus and she's like, I'll forgive and forget if you say you'll never go. Because it's true what they say, it's better the devil you know. Right. And sometimes when some of her lyrics like hit you on the dance floor, it's like that. They hit you like lightning and you're like, oh my God, this is so sad. And to me in many ways, she's also... More than Sarah, like the princess of pop, I would call her like the queen of tears on the dance floor. I love that. The queen of tears on the dance floor. Talk a little bit about her career. Let's maybe do a little bit of a mini biography just for the people who might not know so much about um, her life. So she was born in Australia and she actually she acted in like a, a soap opera for a little bit, right? Called Neighbors from what I see here. And then she eventually had a hit song uh, was The Locomotion. So it was a cover of that I think it's like a 60s song right and then she did a cover of that and that kind of blew up in australia which allowed her to go to the uk to work with um the production team that is a trio of men called stock aitken and waterman and what i thought was interesting is i didn't really think much of her at the beginning and they kind of were like oh okay they had her waiting around and they didn't write the best songs for her but she turned those songs into hits and she became kind of a UK star despite of that yeah like did you know <clears throat> excuse me did you know that last year Kylie Minogue at least in England right because like apparently like there's something the British are doing better than Americans uh, <laughs> when it comes to Kylie uh, last year when her uh, album Disco came out she became the first woman in UK music history to chart a number one album um, for five consecutive decades. Right. And then she was talking about it and she's like, how can I have done this for five decades when I'm 52 right now? And it's like, obviously, you know, like in her 19s, 20s, 30s, 40s and 50s, um, she's had a number one album for five consecutive decades in the 
UK, which is like mind blowing. And yeah, you know, no one in America, for instance, I think has that. Maybe yeah. Barbara. You only have the closest thing you have is well, I don't know. Maybe Barbara has albums. I was thinking how Cher had hit songs in the sixties, seventies, eighties, and nineties, but then it kind of stopped after that. Oh right, totally. And I mean, Cher's like still going around, but I'm talking about a number one album. And you know, like imagine like the Billboard two uh, hundred, whatever it's called, the, mm -hmm. the album chart. I cannot think of a woman or any artist for that matter that's done it. Maybe like Frank Sinatra, the stupid Beatles, because they're always like getting like right, issues. <laughs> right, that's true. Yeah, that, that feels kind of like a, you know, not quite the record. That's like an asterisk should be next to it in those cases. I agree, yeah. But it's like, have you seen any clips of Kylie in Neighbors? No, no, tell me about so, it. So basically she was playing this character called Charlene. And I think you're going to get this right away, I hope, although you're a little bit younger than me. Charlene was basically Rosa Salvaje. Okay. Uh, and she was this like, you know, like wild kid who in the very first episode when she made her first screen appearance, she's trying to break into someone's house. And she's wearing this like hat. And I guess for American audiences who don't know Rosa Salvaje, just think of like, you remember the cartoon Anastasia when she's wearing like her hat and she's looking like, you know, like very like inconspicuous. It's kind of that. So almost like a tomboyish kind of figure. Mm -hmm. So she is trying to break into a home and people stop her. And one of one of the people who prevents her from breaking into the home is the guy who is going to be her love interest in the series, right? And Neighbors got so big. I've never seen the entire thing because I haven't been able to find it, but I've seen a couple episodes online. Neighbor got, neighbors got so big that when her character Charlene was going to marry, uh, you know, her guy, it was kind of like, obviously not at the same levels of like mass hysteria, but people in the UK were so excited that it was almost like a royal wedding, you know? Right. Like, I don't know, like Ross and Rachel Ross getting and married. Rachel. Yeah, right. But yeah, and people were like crazy about it. And I guess one of the reasons why she had to leave was because she was becoming like a superstar. Hmm. So she goes to the UK and that's kind of where she's been living for most of her life uh, since then. This locomotion, though, in the 80s, that was a hit in America. So that was her first encounter with American fame. But then she kind of, after that, doesn't really have another hit in America. And she makes hit albums in the UK, but also throughout the 1990s, there's a lot of... Uh, from what I do in my research, that seems to be a bit of a darker period for her in terms of success, right? Um, can you talk a little bit about that? What would you say? First of all, shame on you, America. And <laughs> I think that she kind of got lost in the mix because like when the locomotion came out, uh, the biggest star in the 80s was obviously Madonna, right? And after Madonna came out, there was all this uh, almost like succession of like, other young uh, female artists who were trying to not necessarily like, copy her, but like emulate what she had done. So we had, you know, like all the uh, Tiffany's and like Debbie Gibson's mm -hmm. and all these people who were one hit wonders for the most part. And I kind of guess that because probably, I don't know how radio works in America. It's always so strange who gets like, um, you know, like any radio play. And I guess because there were so many starlets in the late 80s, trying to uh, ride Madonna's wave of like pop 
and like dancey pop and stuff like that. Probably like the people in Kylie's record companies, like in Australia and Europe, they weren't like really focused in America. Because like every time that you know an international artist wants to do like the infamous crossover, it's this like enormous like uh, machine right behind them trying to get them. Remember when Shakira like crossed over, for instance, and it's this machinery of like studios and publicists, marketers all of them trying to make this happen for this person. Mm -hmm. And I don't think Kylie had that at all. And then there's something that happened to her in the early 90s. And she had, for a very long time, she had this very contentious, and there's interviews, like there's just like, if you like go on YouTube, there's so much of this, it's so funny. Uh, But those are like very petty, but there there was this like contentious kind of like thing where she was trying to prove to the world that she was not Madonna. Mm. So when when she goes on interviews and when she's like in her early 20s and people are like, what do you think about Madonna? And she always gets in this like defensive mode and like, well, she's doing her thing and I respect her, but I'm not Madonna. And it's that whole thing that becomes so uh, prevalent in pop culture and just society, I guess, where it's like if there's some women and there's another women around, they're going to try to make them fight, right? Right. You're going to pit them against each other. So she went through this phase where she was trying to separate herself, I guess, a lot from what Madonna was doing. And if you go back and you listen to like uh, Kylie's discography from the early 90s and stuff, it's not at all like what Madonna was doing. You know, she was mostly mm-hmm. fo- focusing on more like Euro pop and like dance while Madonna was like experimenting with like house and like trip hop and other things. So Kylie was like very, I would say efficiently trying to separate herself from being related or thought about as another Madonna to the point where people in America couldn't even think about her because she's not at all like their favorite star at the moment. Right. Right. And there's also something like, I guess like dark about, her life was that uh i mean I'm, i know you've done your research and you saw that she was uh she dated michael hutchins the lead singer uh in excess for a long time mm-hmm. and they had broken up by the time he committed suicide but he had been like one of the most influential people in her life so imagine that i guess like someone that you love dearly suddenly like ending their lives and he and Kylie were kind of like the, uh, I don't know, like the royal pop couple in Australia, right? right? It was like the princess of pop with like one of the biggest rock stars in the world. And I'm assuming that all these things that, you know, like, again, she was so young also, like all these things of her trying to make her own path in the world and also being with someone who was in the end, unfortunately very destructive probably like took her into a different year than um than what american wanted to hear at the moment right but then at the end of the 90s she kind of comes out of this period and it seems like that machine that you're talking about kind of got together and decided okay it's been enough time we need to make kylie minogue a star in america 
because I found that article from Billboard that was called Kylie, Is Kylie Gonna Become Finally a Star in America from the year 2002? And it is with the release of the album uh, Fever, which has a lot of her biggest songs. It's definitely the time when I first heard about her and, and learned who she was. I don't know if that's the same for you, but that's when you have Can't Get You Out of My Head, Love at First Sight, In Your Eyes, Come Into Your World. So... I think it's her biggest album in America, probably. And the one moment when she came closest to stardom. So is that For also sure, when yeah. you first heard about her? Do you want to hear? I remember exactly where I was the first time I saw Kylie Minogue. And the first time I heard her. Because uh, I probably was too little to remember the locomotion when it was big. I'm assuming that if it was big in the States, it probably was big in Latin America. Uh, but I remember that. The only reason why I think it was big was because my dad the other day mentioned something about that skinny blonde girl who sings a song about trains. And, <laughs> I'm like, and I'm like, oh, okay. So if he knows the locomotion, it must have been huge all over the world because he doesn't know anything about pop music. But when I was 14 years old in the year 2000, I, it's nothing to do with anything, but when I, after I got home from watching that movie Dinosaur, remember that movie? I do. Uh, yeah, I've never seen it since because after I got home from watching that movie, I fell and I slipped and I broke my leg. Wow. So, so I was, uh, I was, I wore a cast from like my toes to my thigh wow. uh, for like four months. And while I was like in bed rest, right? Because I could, I couldn't do anything. Like I had to wear crutches and this thing was so fucking heavy. I started watching a lot of the Olympic Games in Sydney mm. in 2000. And I would be watching all the, the shirtless divers and swimmers and stuff, but I'm obviously like a huge fan of like the opening and closing ceremonies. So at the closing ceremony for the 2000 Olympics in Sydney, suddenly, you know, there's this like carnival thing going on. And suddenly I remember there was this tiny, really gorgeous girl wearing like a, sh like a Vegas showgirl outfit, like pink feathers everywhere. And I was like, huh. And on top of that, she started singing Dancing Queen by ABBA, which is one of the, you know, one of the greatest songs of all time. And it was Kylie. And that was my first time when I was like, who is this? And it was Kylie Minogue. And then when I saw her again, like two years later, she was, you know, Kylie from Can Get You Out of My Head. But I, I'm, yeah, I, I'm never gonna forget that moment where I was like sitting in front of the TV. Like, she was just so magical and like, she's so tiny. She's like five, I don't know, like four, one or something, she's super tiny. Um, and I remember like someone so tiny commanding so much attention. And I remember that she was having so much fun and she looked so happy. And she, there's something about her performances. Like every time you look at one of her performances when she's singing live and when she's you know performing in front of an audience, All she really wants to do is make people smile and make people feel happy and give people joy. So I was in gay heaven, Conrado, with this <laughs> women wearing like pink feathers singing ABBA surrounded by naked men. I was like, this is this what paradise. Is <laughs> yeah. Have I died? <laughs> Incredible. So actually, I have a question for you since you're the, the super fan, because doing this research and listening to all these songs, I had a vision from when I the time when I first learned who she was, which is around this time. And I have this vision of being at a like a kid's party 
and it was a girl's birthday party, I'm pretty sure. And they put on the song, they put on Can't Get You Out of My Head, and all the girls are dancing and going like, oh my God, the song that we love, whatever. But then they played another song. And I'm, I think it's another Kylie song, but I'm not sure. And then the girls started dancing, and I, and, and I have a memory of the song, but I can't place what song it is. So I don't know if you can help me. The, the biggest hint that I have that I remember very vividly is that all the girls started dancing and it was a choreography that they had seen, which I imagine is maybe for the video or something that included stomping their foot. So it was a little bit like they were dancing and they were like, step, 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 stomp. Every now and then in the song, they would do that. I, I'm kind of uh, a little bit lost with it because I tried to figure it out. I listened to the songs that were singles from that album because I thought maybe it's one of those and, and none of them really rang a bell. So I don't know if you have any hints about that, if you were paying attention to pop music at that time. I don't I, I don't know. I can't think of anything from that era that's going to be like having kids stomping while they're dancing. Um, no, I don't know, to be honest. I can't, like no recollection of the melody or lyrics at all. Well, I'm also a terrible singer, so even if I if I if I tried to replicate the melody, it would sound nothing like what it actually was. I'm sure, but it was it was like a disco beat, you know. It was a little bit up further, more up tempo than "Can't Get You Out of My Head," but it was less tempo than like "Love at First Sight," which is the one that I thought maybe this is it, and then I listened to it, and it's it's too fast. It was and like, it wasn't it wasn't spinning around either then because you heard that right. I don't think it was. I listened to that as well. Um, so this is a mystery. I guess I'm putting it out there now to the listeners. If anyone has any idea what this mysterious song from around 2001, 2002 might have been, uh, if you were one of the girls at that party, maybe, and you're listening to this and you remember this choreography, please let me know, because this is racking my brain since since it entered it. For like 20 years. Yeah. <laughs> Basically, wow, time flies, huh? Um, I know, right? All right. Um, well, I guess that mystery is out there now. So please write to to me on Twitter or something if you have the answer, please. I would be very grateful. Um, anyway, this is the biggest time for Kylie. I, I think in many ways, well, definitely in the US, people would say this is the peak of her career. And maybe even internationally, this is one of her biggest moments. And... And then what happened? Do you do you have any theories? What happened with Kylie is that Kylie kind of like, uh, this sounds like something someone would say about any artist they love, right? But Kylie marches to the beat of her own drum. And for instance, in the early 90s, when uh, those three men that you mentioned were making all that music for her, she reached a point and it was, it's so funny because like, obviously, you know, I'm, I'm a homosexual historian, I guess, in a way. And if you try to like draw parallels of sorts with the kind of music and the kinds of things, not the music per se, but the kinds of moves that Kylie and Madonna were doing around the same time, they're very similar, not in terms of genre and the music they were making, but in terms of the decisions they were making. Um, for instance, in the, early 90s after she had become 
a queen of dance music in Europe, and she's huge in England and all over Australia, right? And other parts of the world, like she's also like big in Asia. Um, she decided that she didn't want to do that anymore. So in 1998, she put out this experimental indie rock album called Impossible Princess that has a lot of uh, country meets like Eastern, like Indian music specifically, trip hop. And it was not the Kylie of the, um, you know, the dance floor. I forgot who it is that she worked with when she was doing that album, but it was like one of the big alternative uh, artists at the moment in America. It must have been someone from like the, what was it called? Like Maniacs or the Preachers or something like that. I don't know. But it was, you know, she started working with people who were doing different kinds of music. So she drops that album and it is so strange. I mean, it has this like really long songs about um, this, this one song called Limbo, which is so bizarre. And there's, uh, you know, this there's this like very like sudden shift into um, alternative music, I guess is what the Grammys would call it, right? Like indie mm-hmm. rock and electronic rock. And obviously that was such a departure from what she had been doing for the decade before that people didn't really know how to respond to it. So at the same time that she was doing that album, when she dropped that album, Madonna released Ray of Light, which was also like a huge departure from everything Madonna had done Hmm. before then, right? And they're both probably the most critically acclaimed albums of their respective careers. But when you ask about what happened after Can Get You Out of My Head, basically what happened was slow. And you remember, you know, we had uh, Can Get You Out of My Head and In Your Eyes, Love at First Sight, um, Coming to My World, right, as the singles from Fever. And all of those have a very distinct sound to them where you're like, oh, it's the same artist, it's the same um, album probably, you know, this is what they do, right? Mm -hmm. But then when she had her follow-up album, Body Language, the first song she released was Slow. And Slow has nothing to do with the Fever era. Slow is like a completely different kind of sound. One of the strangest things that I've ever seen was that uh, I'm never going to understand the category of like dance, either album or recording at the Grammys. But I remember when she was nominated for Best Dance Recording for Slow, I was like, how do you people dance to slow? (laughs) So it was not a dance record. Yeah, exactly. Like the entirety of body language, starting with slow, is almost like a throwback to 80s music. But not even the 80s music that she was doing in the 80s, but 80s music, like no one had done, uh, I don't know, it was... Since the mm. 80s, probably. It was like very like R&B right. and soul infused. And there's obviously like a lot of electronica in there. But it was a completely different sound. Slow down and dance with me. Yeah. Slow. Skip a beat and move in my body. Yeah. Slow. Come on and dance with me 
that I'm very ashamed to admit that I hate it slow when it came out. I was like, I want more fever. I want more disco. I want more future disco stuff. Mm. And she came up with this song that was completely, you know, out of what I expected of her. And because that album, like the singles were slow and red blooded women and uh, chocolate. And those songs are smooth. They're almost like jazzy in a way, like, I love how chocolate has like all those, all that brass, for instance, and it's very smooth. It's more seductive. It's not dance hmm. in any way. So obviously I'm assuming that America, if you don't give them the Big Mac every year, they get tired of it. They get, you know, people you know, want what they want. That's very interesting. And I have talked about this before, and we were talking about this actually on this podcast with Saj, the when we had an episode about Charlie XCX um, and talking about how, there seems to be this kind of, uh, I don't know, but but a lot of female artists, pop artists specifically, they have to like almost with every new album, they have to reinvent themselves. And I don't know if in Kylie's case, if you say that it is uh, an, something that was imposed on her or something that she wanted to do, maybe... I, I always wonder, is this that the person is trying to experiment and they're just going into new directions because they want to take something new or is it that maybe because you know madonna did it so well and it worked out for her that they have the pressure to do the same thing uh you know and try something new i don't know how you would see it in her case so in her case and i'm not trying to be like defensive because i love madonna as well um in her case it's like really strange because the coincidences are you know they don't really stop there when it comes to that because for instance in 2000 when madonna released music which was her return to i mean more of her dance roots and stuff kylie released um light years it was two years after impossible princess and people were calling it her comeback i mean they pretended that that whole like indie face hadn't happened mm -hmm. and kylie started singing disco music again like i love that album light years so much because it's kind of like a history of dance music uh through the eras like there's like a lot of like corny kitschy songs like yes there's a yeah there's a song that almost sounds like copacabana and it's you know it's like recounting you how people have danced through the through the ages mm -hmm. and then madonna's music was basically a celebration of music so right. i know that's very broad but it was it was like kind of like trying to like give people uh a retrospective, so to speak, of what music and dance had become by then. Mm -hmm. So then when, for instance, she, I, the comparisons like stop because like when she put out Fever, which was huge, Madonna put out the year after that, she put out American Life, which is one of her biggest like uh, flops, I guess, in terms of commercial yeah. success and stuff, but everything because of the war and everything that was happening. Uh, but I would say, I don't think that artists like Madonna and Kylie, for instance, really listen to what the trends are saying mm. because the times when they do what the trends are saying, it never works. Are the times, yeah, are the times exactly when 
when they you know when they don't succeed like for instance when in 2013 when kylie signed on to uh jay-z's label i was like it's happening uh... you know it's happening for her finally uh and then the album was so the album kiss me once that she put out under uh jay-z's label was so uh unkylie in a way it was like a mm. little bit like disorganized and messy to the point where like i'm sure that she had all this like executives telling her like oh we need to do this kind of song this kind of song like you know she had like songs with like um for the first time she had songs with like rap artists mm-hmm. and and Didn't stuff feel like, like that her i guess yeah it's a good i mean it's a good album because like i'm biased obviously <laughs> but it wasn't really what you know what she wanted to do and then like every time yeah. that she does what she really wants to do not that they were keeping her like hostage or anything right but whenever she does whatever she wants to do the albums are just like magical yeah and the success i think you're right that you can't force it like when you are going to be a pop diva you have to set the agenda i think you if you because i think the people can tell whether or not you're following on the trend or doing your own thing and wanting to say what comes next because i remember for example when christina aguilera was around and she tried to do this kind of like jazzy i don't know if you remember in the mid 2000s she had this album where it was kind of like big band or whatever and that did kind of well but it wasn't huge and then and i feel like because of that she tried something different and it kind of worked but then she'd return but then she kind of feels like she got scared and then her next album was very electronica which was like you know dance music edm at that time and it didn't feel like it was her and that kind of like just tanked her career i think because it just felt like oh you are no longer a person who sets the mood you're just following in you know right and it's like even if you look at kylie you know like her uh when she released fever in the united states it peaked at number three on the billboard uh 200 which is her highest ever rank in america and then when two years later she released body language that debuted at number 42 and it was a flop in America. Like mm-hmm. people didn't respond to it at all. Yeah. Do you think that maybe I have a theory that I'm thinking of just now. This is 2003, like you're saying. So this is the time of like Britney and Christina. And especially this is the time where Britney and Madonna had the kiss when Britney and Justin Timberlake were breaking up. This is the time that we've seen. We've seen the documentary on Hulu, the Britney Spears, when she was America was obsessed with this kind of messy tabloid culture. Do you feel like the fact that Kylie was so polished and so centered that she wasn't given those headlines kind of played a role in her kind of being pushed to the background in American life? I absolutely agree with that because Kylie has always throughout her entire career has remained very private. And she, for instance, she doesn't discuss her politics she never discusses like the only thing that she ever really discusses is you know equal rights right Mm -hmm. but then in terms of like her life and everything like she's very um cautious i guess with how much she shares and probably in england yes you know like tabloids in england are a whole different culture right like a whole different monster maybe in england yes but in america i don't think she was giving the people the kind of uh 
backstory that we needed or that we thought we needed in the early 2000s when it came to like the Justin and Britney drama and then like Lindsay Lohan, you know, putting mm-hmm. out albums and even Paris Hilton. Paris Hilton. Yeah. Album. And she didn't have that. Like, you know, like even I've thought many times about do I ever want to meet Kylie, right? Like, would I want to interview Kylie? And a part of me is like, uh, hell yes. But then another part of me is like, she's kind of, I would compare her to, you know, the way that Amy Adams conducts herself in interviews, like where Amy Adams is like a brilliant actor and she's really talented, but she's a really boring celebrity, right? Right. I mean, what are you going to write about Amy Adams? Um, and I kind of feel like it's the same thing with Kylie, where like all that she wants us to have is in her work. Mm. And she's not willing to let us go. She's almost you know, one of her idols is Dolly Parton. And she's almost like Dolly in that way. Like she doesn't let people in beyond the boundaries that she set for herself. Right. So you're never going to catch her like drunk driving. Yeah. Or, right. You know, like, of course. Yeah, leaving an orgy. Or, you know, (laughs) all the other things that we have come to associate with, like, loving a pop star. Like, she doesn't give us that. She doesn't have, like, she has a lot of drama that's never, like, really her own doing. Mm. Uh, But it's not, you know, like, some, like, trashy People magazine, like, Us Weekly, uh, Hello magazine, kind of. It's never like that. It's always things that that happen to her. Like, I always call her a saint. She suffered a lot. Mm. but it's not that sassy exciting which is a horrible word to use but it's not that exciting drama that makes people be invested in someone i know what you're saying it's not like controversial it's not like messy you know um now that you mentioned dolly i feel like i i sense very much a similarity in the way people talk about their music and the artists in that I, I see a lot of, of Kylie fans talking of her music almost like a gift, like this really beautiful thing that has been given to you to like, you know, party on the dance floor and like just leave your worries behind and just kind of lose yourself in the music. Like, so I think the part of the personality comes with that, of the fact that she feels like you said, you know, the green fairy. She feels like a fairy godmother who's coming to like give you this amazing music um yeah like just last summer when i had a i had a what fortunately was just a covid scare i had a fever for a few days and i was terrified and obviously you know like if you get a fever in the age of covid you think you're dying right mm-hmm. and i had this fever for like three days and on the third day when i was sick kylie dropped her new single and i didn't know it was coming and then I saw that she was doing like a radio thing with like the BBC or something. And I stayed up until like six in the morning or whatever. So I could listen to her on the radio and like listen to the song. And I think Conrado that if I had COVID, which I didn't, but if I had had COVID, that song would have healed me. (laughs) I listened. Yeah. I listened to that song on repeat for like two days until I got my COVID results and it was negative. Uh, but it's that, yeah, she shows up like Glinda, like the green, like the green fairy, sorry. And she shows up when you need her the most. Mm-hmm. And she is recognized as kind of a gay, queer icon. Um, I have this quote from singer Rufus Wainwright, 
who the guardian asked him to like pick 10 people who he thinks are gay icons and one of them was kylie and he said i love kylie she's the anti-madonna self-knowledge is a truly beautiful thing and kylie knows herself inside out she is what she is and there is no attempt to make quasi intellectual statements to substantiate it she is the gay shorthand for joy interesting that she's still being compared to madonna but what would you say about this no, I completely agree. She is the shorthand of joy. And it's that thing where she kind of puts up her defenses when people try to trespass that. You know, she doesn't really talk about uh, about like the meaning. You know, she doesn't over-intellectualize... Sorry, I'll repeat that. She doesn't over-intellectualize her work in the same way that Madonna does. And the same way that, for instance... Beyonce is a very cryptic artist. Like, we mm-hmm. don't know that much about Beyonce. But for instance, we know that Beyonce has so many layers of cultural meaning, right? And the things that she does. And she's like referencing things and she's doing that. Yeah. And it's almost like you have to be like almost like a footnote. Like some sort of like, yeah, <laughs> exactly. The same thing goes for Taylor Swift, for instance, where like her fan base, and I mean, we're both Swifties, but I, I'm, <laughs> I'm not to the, I'm not to the, I haven't reached the level of Swifty where I can know who she's singing about or where I'm like decoding messages. I haven't mm. done that yet. Like, I don't know how to do that. Uh, but there's something, you know, there's, I guess the thing is that with people like Madonna, Beyonce, Taylor Swift, Gaga, for instance, who is always like talking too much about her work. Uh, they always, like most artists, almost always give you homework. They give you like an order for you to like, enjoy this to the max or in order for you to enjoy this but get a little bit something extra out of it there's all this assignments like you have to go figure out the references you have to figure out what man i'm singing about you have to figure out what this has to do with like my previous albums you have to find out the secret codes and numbers while with kylie what you see is what you get and you are not asked to go decipher if this song is about you know someone who broke her heart she kind of takes the universal keeps it universal and then somehow it's not like she's trying to trick you or deceive you but somehow by remaining so because it's not shallow Mm -hmm. and it's not surface but by pretending perhaps that something is so um you know surfacey and so like obvious and apparent you don't need to bother doing anything else. Hmm. But then, for instance, uh, you know, it's really hard to talk about her and I talk about her uh, cancer diagnosis in 2005, right? Where I was mourning Conrado. Like, I, I I, don't think, like, I, you know, probably my mom said something like, I'm sure you're not going to be that sad when <laughs> I get sick. Um, but I was mourning. And after she... Um, you know, she was able to overcome cancer and she went back to work and stuff. It's really hard after that to not notice like the tinges of like mortality and being so close to, you know, not being alive anymore and to not existing that that has permeated her music a little bit more. But when she catches herself doing that, it's almost like she's like, this is not about me. This is about people hmm. so uh I, I did tell you to listen to golden right yeah so 
And the song, you know, when she did Golden in 2000, uh, what was it, 2018, and she put out this country album, right? I mean, country is usually the genre that American artists have used to talk about regular life, right? About mm-hmm. like daily, you know, people going around their daily lives and doing stuff. Her country was a little bit more general in that universal way. But I couldn't help but, you know, like when her when her first single came out called Dancing, I couldn't help but notice how it was so permeated in mortality and in sadness. And like basically the the chorus of the song says, when I go out, I want to go out dancing, right? And if you think about it in two different levels, it's like when I go out to party, right? When I, when I go out to a club, when I go out to hang out, whatever, I want to go dancing. But if you take it to the other level and you see it from the lens of someone who survived cancer and you say, when I go out, I want to go out dancing, it's like you're Judy, you're Liza. You're saying they're going to have to drag my corpse from the stage when I'm right. gone. And then at the end of the song, the bridge says something about like when that final curtain comes and it's very, uh, you know, uh, Frank Sinatra, like my way, right? Like, and so the end is near mm-hmm. and we face the final curtain. And it's kind of that, but because it's Kylie and she's doing it in such a fun way. And, you know, dancing was a song that I would stomp to when I danced, but that's way too late <laughs> for your, yeah. For a mystery. Yeah. But it's that, you know, like people don't notice those those things that she's doing with her with her work. And at some point in the 2000s, she also put out a, um, an, not acoustic, what's the word, an orchestral album, you know, with band versions of her, of her songs. And there's all these songs that are so exciting and so happy and so much fun to dance to when where she's singing them almost like a torch singer, um, they just become something else. Mm. The lyrics are so sad and so heartbreaking where, you know, the, the last song in the album, for instance, is the orchestra version of a song called Never Too Late. And basically that song is all about, you know, it's never too late for you to love me, right? Mm. And it's about like, um, uh, she's basically singing like, you know, why can't you see that I'm so in love without you, right? Uh, and why don't you love me back? And that kind of thing. And when that those lyrics are slowed down and paired with this like really lush orchestra, it is like listening to classic torch music. Why can't you try and be a man about it? And if you stop and think about it, you just can't keep walking out on me. And
we have to start wrapping up, but I think that it's so... What I'm coming out of this conversation with is I really do feel that what I said before, that this music feels like a like a gift almost, you know? Like, and now uh, that, you, that you mentioned all this other stuff, it feels like also like, a, like the celebration, the dancing element of it is not accidental, right? Or it's not like just because dance music is popular. It feels like it, there's really a intention and an emotion in the act of dancing for her and in the act of celebrating. And... And, and I think that's what people get out of dancing as well, is that, you know, you go to the club and you go to dance when you're feeling sad. Sometimes you just want to dance. Right. And it'll make you feel better despite whatever is going on. So knowing that all these lyrics have very emotional meanings or can have very emotional meanings. I mean, at, at this point, I think I'm just rambling. But you said it best in just one phrase. The queen of tears on the dance floor. That says it all. I mean, well, thank you. I hope she I hope she listens to this. Um, <laughs> I was just gonna say that you know like it, it, it's what you're saying is so so perfect because it's also the way that her music is delivered is timed so perfectly. For instance, like if you if you go and read the reviews of her album Disco, which is the album that came out um, last year, late last year. For instance, when the first single drops and it says something, and she's singing, there's this line in that song that has totally helped me make it through the pandemic and not go crazier than I feel, where she says, uh, maybe in an endless summer, we'll find our way. And she drops the song in the summer. She had been working on this song for a while now, you know, before the pandemic, right? So it's like so interesting how when she ends up releasing this album that she's been working on for a while if you go and read all the reviews for disco everyone's saying this is what we needed right now you know mm-hmm. we can't go to the disco but she brought the disco home and people want to go dancing and they can't so she gave us something that was you know perfectly timed for what we needed like I don't think it's a, I mean, it is a coincidence, but it's also, again, like another, like almost like too metaphysical, Kylie the fairy kind of thing. But then the, the album itself dropped on uh, the Friday of election week in America, which was a very stressful week, right? For people, obviously in America and for people all over the world as well. Cause like, mm-hmm. what would we do if this crazy racist won again, right? And then the night before the election results were finally announced that's the day when her album came out and for the entirety of like you know those 24 hours between that friday and then that saturday when the results came out i was just like in a happy place i was like dancing to disco in my apartment wow that's great i think that's a great way to end this conversation jose thank you so much for coming on the show would you like to tell the listeners where they can find you and more of your work? Uh, sure. Thank you so much. It was so much fun. Like, I don't think I've ever, I mean, yes, I've talked about Kyrie a lot. <laughs> never like feeling so like, like a scholar. Um, yes. Like you can find me on Twitter at Jose Solis Mayen and like all links to everything that I work on go over there. And also like uh, you mentioned, Conrado, thank you uh, on the podcast and web series Token Theater Friends. So that's where I'll be. Yes, if you're at all interested in theater, I highly recommend checking out Token Theater Friends. It is such a great 
uh, show in both of its forms. So please check that out. Um, all right. Thanks, Jose. I think if we're going to go out, we got to go out dancing. Might as well, right? And that's our show. Thanks again to Jose for coming on to talk about the queen of tears on the dance floor, Kylie Minogue. If you enjoyed our episode, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It helps us find more listeners. But more importantly, why don't you tell someone about the show? After all, word of mouth is the best way to support an independent creative endeavor such as this one. Thanks again for listening, and make sure to come back next time when we'll be talking about the Russian-born animator behind Dexter's Laboratory, Hotel Transylvania, and Samurai Jack. It's Gandhi Tartakovsky. Now enjoy the music and stick around if you want to hear a little more Jose Solis. Can't stand still Won't slow down When I go So, Jose, is there anything that you are obsessed with lately that you've been watching or, or hearing or listening? To the surprise of my football-loving father, I'm fucking obsessed with Ted Lasso. I forgot if I could curse. Can I? Yes, I repeat of that? course. Please. All okay. right. Um, I'm obsessed with Ted Lasso. Like, I, you know, for someone who has, like, sworn that he's never going to, like, play football in his life again. And obviously, Conrad, I'm talking about, like, football football right like not yes what americans call soccer yeah and like i have no idea (laughs) and i have no idea what american football's about so i'm not even gonna go there (laughs) um so you know for someone who's basically like very like not into sports at all i was so compelled by the show because i couldn't stop watching it and i started watching one episode and then the next and then the next and next i knew it was five in the morning and i had binged the entire first season Mm -hmm. and i loved it so much and you you said this was going to be at the end right yeah okay so i mean so we already will have talked would uh, we will have talked about kylie by then um yes and and incidentally you know like one of the reasons why i loved it so much was like because it's so british one of the episodes i think it was my favorite episode in the first season the credit song is Kylie Minogue's kids featuring, you know, like Kylie, not featuring Kylie and Robbie Williams' kids. And I was, when I heard like the, you know, like the song come on, I was like, oh my God. And then I immediately thought about you and I thought about like how many like American audience members who are watching this. I'm like, does the fucking HFPA who gave Ted Lasso Golden Globes know this is a Kylie song? Uh, will they recognize it? So, yeah. Oh, right, because Ted Lasso is this show. Is it's on Apple TV, I think, right? Yeah. And it's Jason Sudeikis plays an American who goes to the UK to coach a football team, a fi- a women's football team. Is that true? No, it's no. uh maybe you know more about football than I do, but I mean, in the uh, I think in every football 
league, there's always like a first division and like a subdivision, right? right. right? Yeah. Yeah. So this team that he goes to, uh, to England to coach is about to lose its placement in like the top division. In the top division, right. Because if you're not good enough, you get, yeah, you get pushed into the lower division, right? Yeah. But he can like, yeah, you can get promoted and stuff. And it's so funny because like one of the things that he's like very mystified about, it's like basically Ted Lasso, which is like Jason Sudeikis character, it's like human, you know, like a human version of Ned Flanders down to the mustache and everything. He's always like, <laughs> he doesn't go like diddly, right? But he says like golly. And like, he's like very, very like obnoxious. He's like nice. And one of the funny things is when he's trying to learn the rules in football and he's like, you have ties. And then I don't think oh, so until he that doesn't moment, know anything about football. Why does anything. he get this job? <laughs> Well, he gets this job, no spoilers, people, but he gets this job because the women who owns the team um, is very angry with her ex-husband who owns the team, who owned the team before her. And she basically wants to sabotage the team oh. by hiring, yeah, by hiring like this, like, Ned Flanders American. And obviously, we know the rules of fiction. Obviously, that's not the way it turns out. Um but it's like it has this like double. I don't know. Like it has this like it navigates like really beautifully like like genre, and oh my god, you know who plays the women, who's his boss? Um, I don't know if you saw her like at the Golden Globes or whatever, like one of the awards where she won, and she's just like really beautiful like older uh, women. She's the freaking like shame nun from Game of Thrones. Which one? The shame man? Remember it. The shame nun, remember, like the shame. Oh, with the bell, shame, shame, shame. Oh, yes, I remember. Oh, so the nun who said shame, shame is the one who's her boss, his boss. It is, yeah. Which is like so, 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 so funny. Uh, I don't know. It's like this show that has like all this, like, hold on. I don't know why I'm recording. Hold on. Let me stop that. Oh, you are recording. Never mind. Yes. it's this like a really little show that has like all this like really beautiful surprises. Like I never knew how much I knew about football, for instance, which I was like, oh, that's an offside, you know, like <laughs> when I'm watching and stuff like that. Uh, but it has like Juno Temple and who I love. I love this actress so much. And it has like all this like tiny like surprises that it makes it so freaking endearing that I'm like, could this be maybe at some point, Colorado, you're going to end up doing an episode of it, like, uh, Ted Lasso and football because I'm like could this be the thing that really like makes Americans understand football it's like the reverse the reverse of, of the premise of this show but that works for an episode it's like when an American goes you know somewhere else I guess right and in this case right because foot what you could do an episode on football as a whole because just the idea that America is the one place in the world that doesn't care about it you know how is it in Honduras? Is it like in Peru? It's like football is like the one sport. Nobody cares about anything else. Are you kidding me? How is it in Honduras? Like, what do you call a little like a little like informal game of football in Peru Pichanga. with your friends? What, P- Pachanga? Pichanga. Pichanga? What does that mean? I mean, that, I guess. But to does me, it, it means that, anywhere? yeah. No, I don't all know. Right. Uh, yeah, this is like so interesting. Like all this Spanish from all over because like, the first thing I thought about, like, picha in Costa Rica meant penis. So I'm like, okay. Uh, but in, in Honduras, those little games are called potra. Okay. Which I guess because of a horse, right? 
So it's like, hey, juguemos una potra. And then, like, all the kids, like, you know, grab some, like, bottles for the goalposts. Right. And then just get to playing in the streets. But, yeah, like, football's, like, definitely, like, the, the sport, I would say, in, like, all of Latin America, right? I guess so. I think there are certain parts where, like in the Caribbean, where people really are into baseball, from what I hear. But from my experience in South America, it's all football all the time. Um, and the great thing about it is that what you're saying, it's very easy to just start a match. Because no matter where you are, all you need is the ball. And then you can make up the goalposts with whatever you have. Or it's not you don't even need anything. It's like, okay, that tree... And that trash can, that's one goalpost, you know? So Yeah. It's or you, like, paint it with, like, a crayon or whatever. Like, wh were you, like, a big football person? Are you, like, a big football person? Not really. Like, I was really bad as a kid at, at playing football. So I didn't really like playing it. As I got older, I started to enjoy it more. But I was so bad, like, because I had spent all those years not practicing. Everyone else around me was so much better. Um But I enjoyed it when, when I got to play with people who were as bad as me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely I'm worse than all those people uh, put together. Like, I don't know how to play anything anymore. But I was watching this show and like, I was, um, you know, I was a few years ago, more than a few years ago, it's like a while ago when Messi had his, his incredible World Cup. When was that? Was that like 2006 or something like that? It doesn't matter, I guess. Um, But it was like a long time ago. And I remember that I was watching Messi because I think it's really cute. No judgment. And <laughs> I was watching Messi and I I saw something that Ted Lasso reminded me of. And it's like, I don't even know what it's called. There's this like move where it's like the player is like, it's like running and the ball's like between their legs. And they like move the ball like parallel, like horizontally from right. leg to leg to like trick and like distract the other players. And I was like, this is like fucking ballet. Right. It was really beautiful. So thank you, Ted Lasso, I guess. Yeah, I do enjoy, I don't like sports most of the time, but whenever, every four years, when the World Cup comes around, I become like obsessed with, with football all of a sudden. And I'm like, who's gonna win? What's gonna happen? Whatever. The last World Cup, we were in Peru, and it was the first time that Peru was in the World Cup for like, 30 years or something so it was crazy and everyone was like so excited and then the team didn't do so well but it was just nice to be there for that um it was really crazy everyone gets obsessed with it all over the world except here in america so when it's the world cup time here i'm like i want to get excited and none of my friends care it's so strange it's like america always makes the world cup basically right Yeah, they're almost always there, and they obviously never win, and, and nobody cares about it. Yeah, maybe they need Jason Sudeikis to uh, do something about it. They need their own Ted Lasso. Maybe that's what, what we should um, get. Like, a, we should get a Peruvian to come coach the, <laughs> the soccer, the U.S. soccer team. Oh, the women's soccer team is really good in the U.S. They have won many times. It's really great, yeah. And they don't get paid as much as the men, so... Not cool. Yeah, that's the world we live in.